Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What did the first congregations of Christians look like? We will examine an inspired snapshot in our study of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." In our last study in the book of Acts, we saw the happy conclusion of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. The audience was convicted, the invitation was offered, and 3,000 people responded by being baptized in order for their sins to be forgiven. Luke says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, they were added. That is, they were formed into a community or a society through their faith and in and obedience to Jesus Christ. They became a community of Jesus' followers. In verse 42, Luke gives the first insight into the character of this new community, and they continued steadfastly. This expression deserves some close attention. It's variously translated, they were continually devoting themselves New American Standard Version. They attended constantly, Anderson. They were persevering, Dewey Reams. They gave themselves constantly, Samuel Sharp. Dr. David Peterson says that in Greek literature, the phrase normally means to occupy oneself diligently with something, to pay persistent attention to, to hold fast to something, or to continually be in. And this description governs every aspect of the worship, work, and service to Christ and to one another, outlined in the next few verses. Reminiscent of that scene on the shores of Lake Galilee when Jesus called his first disciples to be fishers of men, and they left their nets and followed him. Now, those same men have called others to follow Jesus, and the same devotion— An absolute dedication is inspired and demanded. Christian discipleship costs everything, but those who truly know Jesus will gladly pay it and more to lay hold on the riches of his grace and truth. So many times when a disciple fails in his or her efforts to follow Jesus, it is because at the beginning there was no steadfast continuance. There was a stubborn clinging to friends and focuses and responsibilities from the old life, not so here. These new disciples become suddenly and completely focused, 
and gave themselves with consistency and dedication to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. In the original language, these four expressions are divided into two groups of two, connected by the Greek chi. And that symmetry indicates that this is not a perfect list, but a sample or a specimen of the shape of their new lives. This is not a liturgy or order of worship, but it is a glimpse into the function of Christianity. The apostles' doctrine is literally the apostles' teaching. And we should note that all the apostles had one teaching, one uniform message that all believers could follow in harmony. They sought every opportunity to receive instruction from these men because they were beginning to understand that these men had been chosen by Jesus as his representatives. In Matthew 16 and verse 19, Jesus said that in building his church, his congregation or community, he would use the apostle Peter, giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And he said, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Later in John chapter 20 and verse 23, he said to all of the apostles, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Which carried the same meaning as the statement earlier made to Peter, that his company would receive authority by the Holy Spirit to reveal the law of Christ on earth and even to amend or change what had previously been under the law of Moses in the old system. In John 14 and verse 26, Jesus said to the apostles, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Again, in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All the truth of God in matters past, present, and future, all that pertains to life and godliness, as the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, would be delivered to the church from Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Those ancient Christians, note very carefully, were not listening for a fresh word from the Lord or waiting for some inner prompting given to them directly. Even though they had received what Peter called the gift of the Holy Spirit, they did not expect to learn the will of Jesus Christ except through the instruction of the apostles. But the religion of Christ was not only academic, it was intensely practical. They also continued steadfastly in the fellowship. Now, this is a broad word, and there's a lot of disagreement over how it is used in this passage by translators and other scholars. Some think that it simply means they spent time with the apostles and developed close relationships with them. Others think that it refers to worship in general, as even the Lord's Supper is called by this same word, which is sometimes translated communion. Samuel Sharp's translation says, the distributing. And Alexander Campbell translated it, 
the contribution, which is how the same word is translated in Romans 15 and 26, where it refers to the monies offered by the Gentile Christians for the relief of the poor saints in Judea suffering during a famine. Support for that last meaning comes from the next few verses, which explain the relationship and mutual care the followers of Jesus had for one another, even in some extraordinary ways, in those earliest days of the faith. The breaking of bread, as an English phrase, sometimes represents an idiom or figure of speech for a common meal. But in this place, we have several good reasons to suspect that something more is meant. First, the other things mentioned in this summary are all spiritual. Second, perhaps most importantly, there's something unique about the grammar used here that seems to distinguish what Luke describes from the normal figure of speech. Alexander Campbell notes that there is a definite article in the original, what we would translate as the. Furthermore, the word for bread is in the singular, and when these two points are combined, Campbell suggests it is better to translate the phrase the breaking of the loaf, as in Campbell's translation of Acts and the Living Oracles. This unique expression would mean something more than a common meal, and no less than what Paul calls the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20, what many ancient Christians after the time of the apostles called the Eucharist, from a Greek word for blessing or thanksgiving, in reference to the prayer that consecrated the emblems for the act. That the breaking of the loaf in Acts 2.42 is a reference to the Lord's Supper is supported by Paul's description of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16-17, when he says, I'm reading again from the Living Oracles translation, "...the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the joint participation of the blood of Christ? The loaf which we break, is it not the joint participation of the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf..." We the many are one body, for we all participate in that one loaf. In the New Testament in plain English, the translators have accepted this evidence in keeping with a solid scholarly tradition, and they simply translate the phrase, the supper of the Lord, and explain in the footnote, this is an idiom referring to the Lord's Supper. However, there is something meaningful in the phrase that Luke always uses when he evidently is talking about the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the loaf. It reminds us that in those days only one loaf was used and shared when a congregation observed the ordinance. Now, some people might wonder how 3,000 people could share one loaf and one cup, which the Bible also mentions as an essential part of the observance. But when Luke says they did these things, it does not mean that they were always in a group of 3,000 or more. Later, we're going to read about them being in each other's houses. And this was certainly not the whole group at one time. The new followers of Jesus did these things, but not as a megachurch. Such a concept is anachronistic and could not have possibly existed in Jerusalem at that time, evidently except in rare cases when they converted whole synagogues and were able to use their structures for assembling, the early Christians usually met in private homes for worship. Luke's point is simply this. The breaking of the loaf in memory of Jesus' sacrifice and his death 
was a regular part of the lives of those early Christians, although in the passage here we're not told how regular. When we come to Acts 20, we learn what other ancient testimony strongly supports, that they did this on the first day of every week, when they also took up their contribution, according to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Last, but certainly not least, Luke mentions prayers in his summary of the life and program of these disciples. The New American Standard Version footnote informs that in the original, this is literally the prayers, which seems to simply be a more emphatic way of stating the major and prominent role that prayer played in the lives of the early Christians. As we continue through the book of Acts, we're going to find them praying when they gather for worship or when they gather for work when they ordain church officers, when they're blessed with great growth, when they're persecuted, even when they die, they die praying. In the tabernacle service, later in the temple, it was the special role of the priests to burn incense in the holy place and offer prayers on behalf of the people. Not that other people could not pray individually, but the service of prayer was a priestly service. In the days of King David, the number of priests became so great that they were divided into courses who cycled through their work, and when a course was called into action, the various duties would be assigned through the casting of lots. It was by this system that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was selected to offer the prayers at the altar on the day when he met the angel Gabriel in the sanctuary. But Jewish history tells us that in those days of so many priests, the service of prayer at the golden altar was for most men a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Now, all 3,000 men have been made a kingdom of priests all in one day. But this is a new priesthood. There is no limit to their service and no restriction to how often they can approach the throne of grace in Jesus' name. The language does not mean that they continually did all these things on the day of Pentecost, we should mention, but rather that these became the new hallmarks of these men's lives after their conversion to Christ. Verse 43 continues, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Miracles were a regular part of the life of the church in those early days, but we see here that not every Christian was a miracle worker, and the purpose of those miracles was not simply to improve the lives of the Christians by eradicating disease or enabling them to be more effective workers, but it was to inspire fear. Fear, in this sense, is not a bad thing, but a very good and necessary thing. Modern translations generally say, a sense of awe was felt by all. It is an astonished reverence at the power and work of God. Solomon says in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And through the manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power, the signs and wonders, fear came upon every soul. And notice that the fear was inspired by the wonders and signs, the attesting miracles done through the apostles. Why were these people so eager to learn what the apostles could teach them? Because they were doing signs that proved they were teachers sent from God, as John 3 and verse 2 says. 
That was really the function of miracles in the early church, to confirm the authority of God on his messengers and to establish a sense of respect for what they said and did and for the church as the kingdom of God on earth. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 17 says that before Jesus ascended, he told the apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Well, these were the kinds of wonders and signs the apostles did, as the book of Acts records. And Mark continues in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 16, and he says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, listen, and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This is an amazing testimony about the sudden and remarkable love these people had for one another. Lucian of Samoseta, the infidel satirist, admitted, even if condescendingly, that the compassion Christians had for one another was unlike anything that he or the world around him had ever seen. He wrote, It is incredible what expedition they use when any of their friends are known to be in trouble. In a word, they spare nothing on such an occasion. For these miserable men have no doubt that they will be immortal and live forever, and therefore they condemn to death and surrender themselves to sufferings. Moreover, their first lawgiver has taught them that they are all brethren when they have once turned and renounced the gods of the Greeks and worshipped this master of theirs who was crucified, and when they engage to live according to his laws. They have a sovereign contempt for all the things of the world and look upon them as common. As Jesus had earlier declared on the night of his betrayal in John 13, verses 34 through 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. For these people who had learned the love of Christ to give his life for them, there was no earthly possession or comfort they were unwilling to sacrifice for one another. Notice Luke says, All who believed were together. This is much more than an hour on Sunday. These people married their lives together. They were such close associates and so intimately involved that they knew each other's deepest needs, whether those were physical or spiritual. They had all things in common. Not to say, as we shall see in coming chapters, that they relinquished personal property rights, but that they had such love for one another that no personal property was valued over the needs of their brethren. Now, I know that while my brethren own their homes, their homes would be open to me and my family if we needed them. That's the relationship that these people had in all things, all possessions. Those who were wealthy and had possessions to spare, 
sold them and their goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Or, as Lucian said, the knowledge of Jesus gave them a sovereign contempt for all the things of this world and caused them to look upon them as common. They were not poor stewards who wastefully made themselves destitute for others so that others in turn would have to now care for them. That's not the meaning. But they were generous, as generous as need demanded. Verse 46, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Daily, their duties and works consisted of being in the temple. Now, there's no evidence that the early Christians continued in temple worship as before. They continued in many Jewish customs and traditions of the Law of Moses until the end of the Israelite state in AD 70. But from this earliest moment, they would have been instructed by the apostles that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the next chapter, we're going to learn that they went to the temple to evangelize and to preach the message of Jesus. One might just imagine what marvelous illustrations the temple services would have provided as they stood preaching. They might point to the brazen altar and the priest burning the animal sacrifice on it and explain that Christ is our high priest who offered himself in his own blood for our sins, and we may receive his offering by faith in him. And then pointing to the laver where the priest would wash, perhaps they would note how Jesus commanded that all should be immersed in water in his name to have their sins washed away. And as the cleansed priest put on his white robes to enter the holy place and serve, when a man is washed in baptism, the apostles might say, he puts on Christ. And then perhaps they would point to the temple itself and explain that Christ has made a new temple of living stones where God dwells by His Spirit, and then remind them of the amazing rumors spreading through the city that just a few weeks before, during a great earthquake, the veil dividing the holy place from the holiest of holies was ripped in two from top to bottom, and they would explain that rumor was true, and it was the work of God correspondent to the death of Jesus to show that through his death, the way to God's presence was opened up. But not only did they spend time evangelizing the world, they spent time associating with one another, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The grammar is different here. There's no article. It is not breaking the loaf. So this seems to be the regular figure of speech for a common meal. The apostles' writings and the writings of those who came after them mentioned something done by the Christians called an agape, or a love feast. A Barclay says there was something like this done on special occasions by the pagans, wherein the rich would purchase food and throw a banquet for the poor people to attend, and the food would be shared with them. But that which was exceptional to the pagans was common to the Christians. James Haldane, in his book on the social worship of the first Christians, describes the love feast in this way, based on the writings of the early Christians. He says, It may refer to Christians meeting together in small companies, not as a church, just as they do now, and visiting, 
eating and drinking together and enlivening their society by joining in prayer and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These gatherings were carried out, Luke says, with gladness and simplicity or sincerity of heart, meaning that they were not mere pretensions, as some worldly demonstrations of hospitality can be, but they were true manifestations of love for one another as they were praising God. It was the things God had done through Jesus that lay behind all these amazing demonstrations of spirituality, devotion, and love. And we should not be surprised that such behavior gave believers favor with all the people. But we should remember that when Luke says, the people, he means to distinguish those of whom he speaks from the rulers who the next chapters show were the enemies of the Christians from the very beginning, even as they had been enemies of Christ. Verse 47 concludes, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Some manuscripts say to the number, but the meaning is the same. This is the establishment of the church or the congregation of Christ, the people of Jesus, the earthly manifestation of his rule over redeemed men and women. When a person is saved, God places that person into his congregation. And all of that fits together. Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. And Luke says in verse 41 and here in verse 47, Those who were baptized were added to the church and saved. That same church is in the world today, wherever men and women give themselves over to Jesus as their Savior and King, and continue steadfastly in the Apostles' teaching and the new life that it describes. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will. Abides with us still. He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey.